they bring great diversity to our product, they bring amazing um, customer service, and they're just um, the most amazing people in terms of diversity of, of food types, of uh, food and beverage menus, uh, different global experiences. They just bring joy to the business broadly. I'm Danny Vallant, and this is Dirty Linen, the podcast that takes the issues the hospitality industry finds hard to air in public and shakes them all about. Dirty Linen continues to talk about the issue of temporary visa holders in the Australian hospitality industry. And I'm pleased to bring a really different perspective today. It's one of an employer. Uh, CEO Paul Watterson is the um, is the boss of Australian Venue Co. He's got 4,200 staff across 160 pubs. And last time we spoke, 900 of them were not eligible for any government benefits. They're on temporary visas. Uh, Paul, thank you very much for coming along and having a chat to Dirty Linen. So next time you walk the dog, you'll be listening to yourself on the podcast. Yeah, you never like the sound of your own voice, do you? So I might actually skip this episode, Danny. <laughs> no, you've got to listen back to all the amazing things that you're about to say. Um, so, yeah, tell me tell me a bit, little bit about what you do generally and then tell me about how things are at the moment. Yeah, so, Danny, we've got 170 pubs all around Australia and New Zealand. The only states we're not in is Victoria and the ACT. So it's been interesting uh, watching the pubs uh, operate during this restrictive uh, period and what the operating environment has meant for revenue, sales, impact on people and, and just the human dynamics of the whole pandemic, I guess. And Australian Venue Co did something pretty innovative early in the pandemic in terms of your temporary visa holders. What did you guys do? Well, it was probably one of the uh, things that I was most worried about, Danny, when we initially closed. And whereas a lot of pubs and restaurateurs looked at how they could uh, generate revenue to keep the tills ticking over, we were pretty fortunate in that we could spend the most of our time looking after our teams. So we had 900 people who were on various visas and, and what we did was essentially set up a fund to pay them. So for our employer-sponsored uh, visa holders, we paid them the equivalent of job seeker, including the COVID loading that the government brought in so they weren't disadvantaged. And then for the other non-employer-sponsored visa holders, uh, we've been paying them $250 a week while they haven't been able to work, I guess, you know, we're in the fortunate position that we can afford to do that. And I think uh, bigger providers like ourselves have a social obligation to really lean in and, and help these people given how important they are to our broader business. And so uh, we, we've really focused on that. And then since the second Victorian shutdown, obviously, we've reinstituted it for our Victorian team members. So uh, tell me a little bit about the structure of Australian Venue Co because obviously uh, not everyone's able to, well, we can all get on the phone to the bank but you probably don't have to wait on hold for as long as many small businesses would have to. Yeah, we're pretty fortunate in that we, our normal sales are about $650 million per annum across the 170 pubs and we're 80% owned by a private equity firm called KKR. Uh, we brought KKR in as shareholders a bit over two and a half years ago now. Um, but like all hospitality providers, you know, we're in enormous pain when the first shutdown came and, and that's primarily 
because, as you know, our industry operates on negative working capital. So we get paid before we end up having to pay the suppliers and the staff. And that's fantastic um, while the music's going. But as soon as the music stops, it actually causes a lot of heartache having to pay all your suppliers and stuff when you've got no income coming in. So that's where I think the industry's really suffered. Uh, as you point out, we're really fortunate in that we've got uh, 80% owned by a firm like KKR who were immediately supportive of what we want to do to to help our people out. That's, that's I mean, private equity and cosy, helpful, looking after the people, they're not <laughs> concepts that always go together. So um, is it was that something that you had to like sell to them as, as good for the business or are they just like, you know, um, yeah, just loving guys? <laughs> Look, we're pretty fortunate in that we've got three of them on our board and we've got three non-KKR people on our board. To be honest, it wasn't even something that I asked them about. We, we just did it. And I knew they would support it and have supported it. But ultimately, they let us run the business how we want to run it and they hope to get a return in the longer term. But I guess that comes down to the solid relationship we've had with them over a long period and they, they give us a lot of autonomy to run the business in, in the way that we want. And, you know, I think um, there's obviously some bad stories in the past about private equity, but credit where credit's due, they've been enormously helpful for us. Yeah, that's great. Well, so why were you so keen to help out the temporary visa holders in your business? Well, they were clearly the people that government weren't looking to help out. And you could see that very early on in some of the language from the Prime Minister about uh, looking for them to go home if they are able to, which you know was interesting sentiment in itself because clearly they couldn't go home. We had a few who were looking at flights to go home. Uh, the flights were costing three or $4,000 to go home. And so we knew no one else would help them. So we, we had to step up because ultimately they, they're not going to have a roof over their head. Uh, they, these team members, they're not earning megabucks, as you know. So it's not like they had massive savings built up. In many cases, they're using some of their income to support their families at home and, and broader family groups. So they just didn't have a buffer to deal with a prolonged shutdown. And why are they important to your business? Well, they make up about 20% of our overall workforce and they're very talented kitchen staff. We've got some amazing managers. They bring great diversity to our product. They bring amazing um, customer service and they're just um, the most amazing people in terms of diversity of, of food types, of uh, food and beverage menus, uh, different global experiences. They just bring joy to the business broadly and I think that would be um, the same for most hospitality businesses. And they're people who have been with us for quite a long time. We've had a number of them who were ineligible for government support have been with the business six, seven years. And so it just seemed crazy that, that they couldn't get help even though they'd been with us so long, they'd paid taxes all that time. So... And we knew we had to do something. And, I mean, a business of your size, you must have isn't there some kind of like hotline to the PM that big business has, isn't there? Like weren't you able to get on the get on the phone and, and Scott Morrison's like red light would start flashing and you could just tell him what he needed to do next? I, I wish it was that easy. Um, funnily enough, we did speak to the Treasurer a couple of times on this issue and, and they're very aware of it. They're very sympathetic to it. 
but they just couldn't help. And I, and I guess it's challenging when they have so many things that they're dealing with. Um, I, I mean, it's a shame. You look at some of the, uh, in normal times, some of the reciprocal arrangements we have with other countries. And, you know, there's 11 countries, for example, whereby Australians can get healthcare um, for free overbroad with universal healthcare systems. And so, you know, this was not a unique situation. There were Australians stuck in other countries. I just think it's a shame that they couldn't talk to those other countries and come with a reciprocal type agreement that they could do with healthcare, for example, because this is not unique to Australia and, and some of those countries like the UK and New Zealand, there's a lot of Aussies stuck over there without access to their wage support systems as well. It's interesting you say he spoke to the Treasurer and he just couldn't help. I mean, he could, right? It's a decision. You know, he's, He spoke about that you need to draw the line somewhere. It's just about where you decide to draw the line. And particularly for a program like JobKeeper, which was budgeted at, I think it was $160 billion, and then the first um, first uh, round came in at $70 billion. I mean, there obviously was, I know that it's all money that, um, that needs to be borrowed and paid back eventually, but uh, I'm not an economist, but listening to some of the economists, they say that debt's not the thing we need to be afraid of um, and, you know, extrapolating from that, I think what we should be more afraid of is leaving some people out in the cold in our society, not only because it's tough for them but also because when they're without a support net, they are more likely to spread coronavirus. Yeah, it's a very good point and, and you're right. Clearly they could have done something. I agree with you. They should have done something. I think they were just grappling with so many competing issues at at the time uh, and they chose not to take this one, which in my view was the wrong call. And, I mean, they've had a bit more time to grapple with it and they still don't seem to be budging. Yeah, and that's the challenge, isn't it, with politicians generally. I think once they make a call, it's very hard to change that position despite people like yourself, myself, others trying to influence that and and that's not unique to the federal government you're also seeing that within the state government whereby once they make a policy call they're very loath to change it which is a bit and it's a bit unusual for people like you and I where you often think well yeah we often make mistakes and we often get things wrong what's more important is that you change it and deal with it but they just haven't been willing to do it for some reason. Yeah, it's more about embedding in a position. But, I mean, they have changed. I mean, there's no more talk of Team Australia since uh, the second shutdown in Melbourne and Mitchellshire. Team Australia seems to have uh, left the building. Uh, So, I mean, there is a change in the way, you know, there is a change in the nuances around the communication and about, you know, who's on the inside and who's on the outside and where the lines are drawn. So, um, to me, it's just been, you know, one disappointment after another. as far as including temporary visa holders in the various support packages. The one uh, like glimmer of light that I see at the moment is as uh, there are um, pande- there's pandemic leave that's made available for workers in the aged care industry and that seems to be on the basis of the award that they're under, not on their visa status. So to me that seems like a, a bit of a reframing of the conversation where people are um, looked at in terms of the industry that they're working in and not in terms of the status in which they're in Australia. Yeah, and that would be equitable and that would be the Australian way, shouldn't it? You, you've clearly got these instruments which you employ people under and they should all the rules should apply for everyone employed under that industrial instrument. Totally agree. Mm. 
Anyway, well, you know, so you, you've got a pretty uh, – broad perspective. You've got venues in various states around Australia. Can you tell me about the different ways that recovery is working or not uh, in your various businesses? Yeah, and I think this is going to be part of the challenge, Danny, in that you look at when these venues reopen with the restrictions as tight as they were in Victoria, you're operating a business with labour as high as sort of 80% of sales and normally it would run at about 35% of sales for a for a pub and we in many of the states where the restrictions have been rolled back with JobKeeper you're being able to run your labour at in the mid-teens of, of revenue and that's enabling you to generate really good cash flow to subsidise the rest of the business and so for example in Queensland our sales are actually up year on year about 15% in WA they're actually up year on year and Northern Territory they're up year on year as they are in South Australia uh, but at the same time Victoria is shut and New South Wales is very very heavily restricted with the operating environment there and clearly an emerging issue potentially occurring there that means they've been quite cautious about having more than 10 um, patrons seated at individual tables. So our New South Wales business, which I should say are really those large format venues like Cargo Bar and Bungalow on King Street Wharf, they're still sort of 65 70% down. So Victoria and New South Victoria's got a long, long way to go and New South Wales is clearly struggling as well. And those um, states where you're up year on year, is that all? So it's is that partly because of the JobKeeper wage subsidy, but also because people are just so keen to come out and spend money after not being able to for a while? Yeah, well, that's year on year on a revenue basis when you exclude the JobKeeper subsidies. But so it's just people want to get back to pubs. Absolutely, and even in Victoria. Uh, the demand was significantly higher than the capacity when we're able to reopen. People are really keen to get get back into pubs. So I think there's no doubt some of that stimulus money is helping our businesses in those um, states that don't have a lot of restrictions as well. So I think people are getting JobKeeper, some of the job seeker incomes higher than what they would normally get and people quite rightly are spending that you know, on a beer and a palmer, which which is great for our industry. And and we just hope those stimuluses are around long enough to support the Victorian businesses when they can reopen. Yes. When is that going to be? The light at the end of the tunnel seems to just, um, sometimes it seems to shine a little bright and then sometimes it just seems to disappear completely. So I hope it's not too long because the pot and a palmer sounds like a, very appealing and uh, yeah, somewhat distant notion. Yeah, Victoria is very, very grim at the moment, isn't it, with such large outbreaks and and even when we do reopen, it's becoming increasingly clear that people will have to wear masks in the pubs and and until they're seated at, at least and it's going to be interesting to see how that changes the perceptions of of drinkers and diners as well. Um, we People often go to the pub to watch sport and there's a lot of sport on at the moment so you don't get that opportunity. So it's really, it's becoming increasingly clear that Victoria is definitely not going to be open in another three, four weeks which would be what would be notionally the end of the current restriction periods with the caseloads so high. Um, Notwithstanding that, I think the industry did an outstanding job when it was able to open and 
as far as I know, there has not been widespread transmission in Victoria's hotels. I know there was the issue with the Crossroads Hotel in New South Wales, but everywhere I went in Victoria when people were open, everyone knew it was a privilege to be open and everyone, as far as I could tell, were doing the right thing and and that's why it was even more heartbreaking to have to close a second time. And I think the other thing that's frustrating is, you know, there's, there's two sets of rules for different types of businesses because clearly the AFL got the nudge, nudge, wink, wink the weekend before the Victorian shutdown to get all the teams out and get them up to Sydney and Queensland before the shutdown. And I know most businesses couldn't do this, but you know, businesses like ours had the capacity and the accommodation facilities in order to get some staff out of Victoria into Queensland and New South Wales where we could have had them quarantined and, and given them some work. Um, but we weren't given that, you know, 24, 48 hours notice like like others were and that's what makes it even more heartbreaking for some of these people who, who now have only the sort of meagre income that we're helping them with. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So you would have been able to um, shift staff up, put them in your accommodation at some of the venues and then put them to work. Absolutely. We had a number of staff who would have been willing to move into state who knew that they would have to enter 14 days quarantine and we knew we had the capability to look after those people in quarantine because we had teams who would um, deliver the meals. We've got a very um, well-developed meal program for staff. We've done well over 8,500 meals for staff since the initial shutdown, so that was all ready to go. Uh, but we just weren't given adequate notice and, and that's what, that was disappointing. And now places like Queensland are busy. We're short-staffed. We can't <laughs> recruit and we've got a heap of people in Victoria who can't work. Yeah, you just, you just, you just, if you just take a couple of steps back and think about borders being closed between Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland, it's just, it's just a fantasy land. I just, sometimes I just, I don't know, I still, every few days I'm like, what? We're in a pandemic? What? It's, it's just, I don't know, like it's kind of normal, but it's really, uh, I just, I don't know, there's some, some part of me just cannot get used to the situation that we find ourselves in. Oh, totally. And you can see how porous the borders are as well. We've got a pub in Albury. Most of the kitchen team live in Wodonga. Most of the front of house team live in Albury. And you just can't get the kitchen team into the pub. It just doesn't make sense. So what do they do? You just, you just They just literally can't get a, They can't go to work? There's no... Well, a number of them have ha- are living in the hotel accommodation in, in Albury. So that was one occasion where we did at least get 24 hours notice. So, you know, they've picked up, in some cases left their family and are, are living in the pub just to get the pub open. It's totally chaotic. That's crazy. And they could probably, like, kick a footy into their own backyard but they can't actually go there. They're that close. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so as regards like the rules around um, distancing and density within your venues and, you, you know, you said you felt people in Victoria were abiding by the rules. Do you feel like that was the same, not necessarily in your venues, which I'm sure are all ship shape, but in, in Sydney I've had a number of communications with people talking about, you know, that they perhaps were not, didn't think that the rules needed to apply to them. Uh, do you feel like there's a bit of a, a, a bulletproof, people have been feeling bulletproof that they don't have to abide by all the distancing and density rules? I think complacency is always going to be the danger here. And I think the other thing is, you know, we're an industry with over 8,000 licensed venues. Now, in every industry of that size, you're going to have some rogues. And that's what's really frustrating is an industry gets tarred with one brush because 
one operator, for example, or one patron doesn't want to follow the rules. And and we're having a lot of trouble in some venues in Sydney in particular keeping patrons seated, which is what's required. And so we've got we've got to have extra staff on to manage those situations. We've had to have extra security on. We've clearly got a low threshold for um, rebu- refusing service and asking people to leave given the risk to the industry generally and, and the pub specifically. So it's a really complex environment to be off operating in and then as you point out the the check-in facilities have got to be absolutely um ship shape because you know that if your venue if um heaven forbid a infectious patron went to your venue and you did not have good um patron tracking then your venue is going to end up on the front page of every paper because the various health departments are going to have no choice but to go far and wide looking for people who were in your venue. And so I think proper contact tra- contact tracing is really critical, um, most importantly for people's health, but equally for people's reputation because if you do it really well, then there's no reason in many occasions that people need to go to the media to say, were you at this pub in this time? Mm, yeah, absolutely. So you haven't had any outbreaks at any of your venues? Uh, we did. We had, yeah, we did. Uh, very early in the pandemic, we had um, one in our one of our venues in Brisbane, whereby an ex staff member had returned from Italy, and he met with um, twelve staff at the venues, um, and um, three days later, he was diagnosed with COVID. We had all our staff having to isolate for the fourteen days, and thankfully, none of them. Um, um, tr- got the virus, which, but it was pretty scary and it was very early in the period, which was worrying. In a way, though, was that, uh, did that give you a good chance to get all your systems in place? Um, should that happen again? Oh, very much so. It was, it was a bit of a wake-up call, um, probably not as much of a wake-up call. I, I never anticipated it would extend to, to this level that it has, but it certainly um, made sure that we had pretty robust systems. We tracked the staff. Um, talked to the staff about the impact of that and we spoke to the other venues about what had happened so they could be aware of it and conscious of it. And at that point, it was really people returning from overseas who was transmitting the virus. So there wasn't really broad spread community transmission like there is now. And just you've spoken about robust um, contact collection. Is there something else that you learnt through that experience that you could share with other business owners and hospitality workers um, that are listening to this? Just something that they might not have thought of that's really important in terms of having those robust systems and, and trying to keep everyone safe? Well, I think it's about really open communication with everyone because I think they're there's a temptation that, gee, I really don't want everyone knowing someone infectious was at my venue and I think people need to look past this and take the bigger view and be really open and communicative in how you manage it. I think um, in keeping in contact with the staff is also really important. So we were having um, daily or second daily calls with all the staff who were quarantined at that time. Um, The mental health strain on people quarantined for 14 days was really considerable. So looking after their health and well-being was um, really, really important. So having great peer and community support programs around them. I think cleaning regimes are obviously absolutely fundamental 
and I would imagine most venues have those in place now. And and it, it's just um, making people more and more aware. So we're doing more awareness training on what we call our safe socialisation policy uh, that is really trying to, you know, just make people aware that, you know, it, things aren't normal yet and we want to stay open, we want the industry to stay open and we all have an obligation to do that. And I think probably the last thing that we implemented that has gone incredibly well is our contactless ordering system. So we use Mr Yum and that was averaging about 13% of our sales were going through Mr Yum prior to the shutdown. When Victoria was open for a period, we had in some cases a public college law in Paran, nearly 90% of sales were going through contactless ordering Mr Yum on their phone. And that really was interesting because I thought, gee, you know, you don't know who's coming to your pub half the time, but with something like um, Mr Yum, you've just got enormous data that you'll be able to use in future um, to look at what people were pairing foods with, what wines they're drinking, what beers they're drinking, how well your specials are working. So we're going to use it long-term as a, a revenue-driving tool and that data analytics is just going to be so important. Yeah, I mean, it's the the innovations that have come out of uh, like the, the difficult times are certainly many and varied. And that I mean, that is so interesting that you're able to learn more about your customers during this period. Um, let's talk about the city. And I mean, we can talk about the CBD, Melbourne, maybe Sydney as well, or, you know, anywhere around the country. What do you reckon is the future for our CBDs? Oh, in the short term and probably even the medium term, it's incredibly challenging. Now, it's it's increasingly clear that people aren't going to be returning to Melbourne CBD this calendar year. Uh, when you talk to the big employers, they have absolutely no intention, even when they're allowed to go back, to send people back this year. And that's going to have a whole uh, large implications for businesses during that peak trading period. Uh, like most hospitality businesses, we do about 35% of our earnings in November and December, and that's going to be really, really challenging. I think not having sport, not having concerts is going to be really, really challenging. And, and it's, I know we're in the, the eye of the storm now, but it's really hard to see um, a packed MCG anytime soon. It's hard to see a packed Rod Laver Arena anytime soon and I think for city venues it's going to be really challenging hence why I think it's really important to be having those upfront discussions with landlords in particular of CBDs now because the the danger is that landlords play this way too heavy and you do have a whole generation of pubs and restaurateurs who are not going to be operating and you go back to what the city was like 15, 20 years ago where it just wasn't a place to go out and we just can't have it that way. That's such a scary thought. But, I mean, hopefully because there's so much more residential in the city now that we wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't just like revert back to 1980 in that sense of, you know, everything's dead. But, I, yeah, but without the, the commerce in the city, of course, it's, um, it's a very different landscape. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the residential part is really important, but I would I would estimate the residents constitute 20, 25% of, of the trade in the bulk of our pubs. The vast bulk of it come from people before or after the footy, before or after concerts, catching up with their workmates, Friday night lunches, catching up with the guys or girls in the city on a Friday night. And, and those things are just not going to happen in, in the short term. 
Mm. So speaking of landlords, and a, a lot of um, restaurateurs are very concerned because the um, the commercial tenancy uh, rules that were brought in by the state government were set to expire at the same time as the original JobKeeper, so towards the end of September. We know that JobKeeper has been extended, but we haven't heard yet about commercial tenancy um, obligation for landlords to negotiate and all those those kinds of things. What's your feeling around that? And do you have for people who are trying to um, negotiate with tricky landlords? Oh, I think it's it's got to be extended clearly for places like Victoria. But to put it in context, we weren't captured by the Code of Conduct because what our revenue was. So we went in to landlords and just had really frank and open discussions in terms of what this means for your cash flow. We're giving every landlord our turnover monthly now and we've only ever had to do that on with a handful of venues, but we want to share with them, you know, what's the cost structures of our business and what are the consequences of not working with us to come through, you know, this really painful but ultimately hopefully short to medium-term blip because landlords are going to have to offer material incentives to get new tenants in if they, in fact, you know, get rid of their existing tenants. And so, no one wants that to happen because the cost of the incentive to landlords will be materially more than helping out an existing tenant. So in a number of cases, we've gone from having to pay a fixed rent to a rent as a percentage of whatever the turnover is. So we send the landlord the turnover each week and in, on these examples, we pay 13% of whatever that turnover was. And, and he understands that. He understands that, you know, this is a short-term period. He wants what? something to help him pay his outgoings. Um, we've also helped them access all the other support that they that's available on land tax, on the city council. So I think um, accessing the, the breadth of support that's available by the different people like councils and state governments is really hard to digest as well. And, and there's no, no one-stop shop that you can go to. So we've got a pretty good summary of those. So if any of your listeners want to get in contact, I'm very happy to send those around uh, or maybe I could send them to you, Danny, and you can put them on your website as well because I know you've got already great resources on your website that people use. Paul, I would love to get that info and share it with my community. I know it would be incredibly useful. Um, so I just want to wrap up by asking you, about one of my local pubs, which I th- you were going to buy, and it's called the Espy. So, <laughs> can you tell me? Can you tell me what's happened there? Yeah, so we had um, an agreement with the Sandhill Road boys to buy uh, their their pubs. Um, they were still going to um, continue to develop the waterside and still stay within the industry, but we were looking to um, potentially IPO. Australian Venue Co. or listed on the stock exchange. Um, like all these tra- large transactions, you have clauses in the sale agreements that if something materially changed between when you agreed on a price and the sale went through, um, then you can renegotiate. And, and what we found was uh, typically there to cover off for things like, for example, if a venue burns down, um, you never anticipate you, you need them for these types of uh, agreements. So what we did was we agreed with um, the Sand Hill Road boys to talk again when things come back to normal. 
they were really focused, quite rightly, focused on their teams, focused on their venues, and we just agreed to leave discussions where they were and we'll potentially pick them up down the track if the boys are interested. Well, Paul, I guess there's a lot of things that have been left to you when we're at the other side, a lot of conversations to be picked up, a, a lot of beers to be had, uh, a lot of palmers to be eaten. Uh, I'm going to make up for it with uh, so many palmies in so many pubs and uh, maybe we can even uh, blow the froth off a couple together, perhaps even with masks on, but I'm sure it'll still be good. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to it, Danny. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for chatting to Dirty Lennon. Great to have you on, Paul. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. <laughs>